afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Adults over age 70 who have chronic diseases such as diabetes are among those at highest risk for health complications and death due to COVID-19. The ability of older patients to manage their diabetes during the pandemic may be influenced by changes in daily routine, mental health issues due to social isolation, and difficulties getting necessary health care treatment. Today, my guest is Lisa Muras, registered dietitian and certified diabetes educator with the Virginia Hospital Center Outpatient Diabetes and Nutrition Program. Lisa will talk about all aspects of diabetes, including causes and risk factors, types, signs and symptoms, diagnosis, and treatment. She will also explain how older adults with diabetes can manage their condition during COVID-19 and find resources to help stay active and healthy. So welcome, Lisa, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Cheryl. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, this is such an important issue in and of itself, a health condition. And in this, these times, it's even more important to know as much information as possible. So we're going to get started right away. So Lisa, give us a little basic information. Explain what is diabetes and what are the different types? Sure. Um, in short, diabetes is high blood glucose or sugar. Um, glucose is the primary fuel for our bodies. It's the primary fuel for our brain and our central nervous system. But when we have high levels of glucose in our blood, it can cause complications over time. Um, when a person's blood sugar is high, the body will produce insulin. And insulin is a natural hormone that acts as a key to unlock the doors um, or cell receptors. And this allows the glucose to enter the cells. But again, when the blood sugar levels are high, when that glucose is staying in the bloodstream and not getting into the cells, we can see complications over time. With diabetes, it's a case where either the body does not produce enough insulin to escort that glucose out of the bloodstream and into the cells, or the insulin that's being produced is not being used effectively, or possibly both. With type 1 diabetes, it's a case where the pancreas is not making insulin at all anymore. Type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease. So those cells in the pancreas have been destroyed and they're not able to make insulin. So an individual with type 1 diabetes would have to take insulin um, basically for the rest of their lives. I used to be referred to as juvenile diabetes, but you can actually be diagnosed with type 1 diabetes really at any age, although we typically see it mostly in youth. The most common type of diabetes is type 2 diabetes. And that is a case mainly of insulin resistance. So again, the body is producing insulin, but the cells are just not using it effectively. Those uh, doors to the cells are blocked, they're locked, and insulin is not able to open them and allow the, the glucose into the cells. So we see those high levels of, of blood sugar, which again can cause complications over time. And then the third most common type is what is known as gestational diabetes. Um, that's diabetes that occurs during pregnancy. Gestational diabetes is related to the placental hormones. Um, those are interfering with the ability of the mother to control her blood sugar. So in, in that case, again, high blood sugar, the, the glucose levels in the blood are too high, which if not resolved can cause complications for both the mother and for the baby. 
those are probably the three most common types. And again, type 2 diabetes would be the most prevalent. And what are the risk factors then for diabetes? And of course, since this is aging matters, I'm curious to know if age is a factor um, insofar as, as uh, getting diabetes. It is. Um, as we get older, uh, really over the age of 45, our risk for diabetes increases. Um, other risk factors would be having a family history of diabetes. So that would be a parent, grandparent, sibling with diabetes. Um, carrying some extra weight, being overweight or obese, uh, having a history of gestational diabetes or prediabetes. And prediabetes is a case where the blood sugar is higher than normal, but not quite high enough to be diagnosed with diabetes. Having a sedentary lifestyle, that's a risk factor. Smoking is also a risk factor for diabetes. And then some ethnicities are at a higher risk for diabetes. African-Americans, Latino, Asian-Americans, to name a few, are at an increased risk for diabetes. So you said older adults are more likely to, to have diabetes. Uh, in addition to those risk factors, is there something else? Is, is the age or what would you tell us? Well, as we get older, unfortunately, as we know, things don't work as well as they used to. Um, so so yes. the pancreas is a bit impaired. Um, the function of the pancreas decreases over time. So, of course, that interferes with the ability of insulin to do its job if we're not producing as much insulin. Um, and unfortunately, as we get older, we often put on some weight, very common type of thing to happen. Uh, we tend to get a bit more sedentary as we get older. So those are two things there that are increasing the risk, as well as the fact that that pancreatic function um, is um, decreased as we get older. So we're seeing more of that insulin resistance. Um, quite common, actually, in, in the United States. It's estimated that about, about one quarter of people over the age of 65 have diabetes and as many as one in three older adults have prediabetes. And of course, we expect those numbers to increase as the decades go by. Well, you just led me right into my next question, Lisa. So what are the early signs of diabetes if it's so prevalent? Wow, 25%, that's, that's a pretty substantial number. What could people expect to experience um, if they were having diabetes? And, and is that the same as prediabetes? Help us to understand that. The classic signs of hyperglycemia or high blood sugar are increased urination and increased thirst. Um, that's sometimes what will send someone to the doctor and say, you know, this just doesn't seem right. I don't know why I'm drinking so much water and then going to the bathroom all the time. This, this seems abnormal. Um, other signs might be blurry vision, um, having dry skin. Um, sometimes people will notice numbness or pain in their extremities, particularly the feet, uh, increased fatigue, increased hunger. And then many people have no symptoms at all. Um, not uncommon for me to have a patient come in and say, you know, I went in for my annual physical and they told me I had diabetes. I had no idea. I, I didn't feel any different. I didn't notice anything at all. So it's not uncommon to not notice these symptoms at all, particularly with prediabetes. Um, with prediabetes, because, you know, it's sort of the early stages, we're starting to see that increase in blood sugar, but not quite to the diabetes stage yet. Um, many times people will not notice any symptoms. So always a good idea to get those um, annual physicals done and have that annual blood work done just to make sure there's nothing going on that you haven't noticed. So that blood work is really the, the actual test or the diagnostic um, procedure that could um, diagnose diabetes. Is, is that correct? That's right. 
the hemoglobin A1C, that is your average blood sugar over the past 90 days. And that's a test that will be done as part of your, your lab work by your physician. Um, that is really the gold standard for diagnosing diabetes. Having an A1C of 6.5 or higher is a diagnosis of diabetes. Um, just below that, having an A1C of 5.7 to 6.4 would be considered pre-diabetes. Um, and that's a case where I encourage patients really to, to make some changes. You know, sometimes it's a case of, uh, you know, pre-disease and, you know, just a touch of sugar or something along those lines. But pre-diabetes is really a case where we want to make some changes so we don't move to type 2 diabetes later on. Another test can be fasting blood sugar, um, and that can be done as part of your, your comprehensive blood work annually. Um, but that test should be repeated. It should be done more than once. And having a fasting blood glucose of above 126 would be the diabetes range. That would be a diagnosis of diabetes um, if that was done more than once. I was just wondering also, I believe that uh, people with diabetes also test their urine uh, regularly. Would urine test also be a diagnostic test or would that be too early yet uh, as a possible diagnostic test? Typically not used as a diagnostic test, but would definitely alert a physician that something's going on. Um, if someone had some protein in their urine, that would be an indication that the kidneys were not working as well as they should be. And that could be because of diabetes or because of the kidneys working extra hard to try and filter out that extra glucose and then spilling some protein into the urine. So kind of a warning sign, I would say, but they would, in most cases, follow that up with additional testing. So if uh, an individual has some variation or they're outside the norms for these two diagnostic tests that you mentioned, the blood tests, how then does the physician uh, determine what the best treatment uh, would be for the, the, the diabetes? Because of course, I'm sure that people begin to worry whether it would be insulin therapy or oral drugs or just diet. Um, how is that all that determined? There's a lot of factors a physician would take into consideration. Um, one would probably be the duration of the disease. Um, if someone's had diabetes for a number of years, um, many cases we'd be using more than one type of therapy. Um, the American Diabetes Association recommends initiating insulin therapy um, in patients whose A1C is uncontrolled after three months of what's called triple, triple therapy combinations. That's usually three different types of oral medications. Um, in my experience at diagnosis, for most people, we would start with an oral medication. And metformin is the most common oral medication for diabetes treatment, really the, the first line medication for um, treating high blood sugar. Um, as time goes by, if a patient is still not really seeing any improvements, perhaps that A1C is still much higher than we would like it to be. And if you're following the guidelines, the American Diabetes Association recommends keeping that A1C below seven. So if I had a patient whose A1C, you know, say a diagnosis was eight and they started on metformin, went taking that for several months, really weren't seeing any improvements. And of course, we always encourage the lifestyle improvements as well focusing on diet and physical activity. But if we weren't seeing any improvement, many times the physician's then going to add a second medication. And typically that will be an oral medication. And again, if things still aren't going well, sometimes we'll try a third medication, see how that goes. And again, if it's not working, moving on to insulin. Um, in cases where the A1C is very high at diagnosis, perhaps above 10%, then insulin therapy would be appropriate from the start because we really want to get those blood sugars under better control. 
Um, an A1C, just to kind of give you a bit of perspective, of above 10% is an average blood sugar of about 240. So that's pretty high. Um, and, and when we have high blood sugar, and particularly when we have high blood sugar for a long period of time, we're really inc increasing the risk of complications, complications with our eyes, with our kidneys, with our nerves. Um, so we really want to focus on getting that A1C down. Um, I'm a big fan of insulin. I, I know people have a lot of um, phobias and um, most of my patients aren't too happy about uh, starting insulin therapy, but I will tell you it works very well. It's very effective if used um, safely and often used in conjunction with a physician or a diabetes educator to titrate to the proper levels. It can really be effective for lowering uh, a person's A1C, lowering their average blood sugar. And again, that's just what we want to focus on. We really want to focus on getting that blood sugar down to safe levels so that we can prevent or delay complications. And as I tell my patients, if insulin helps us do that, then absolutely we want to look to that um, because it is a tool in our toolbox that we can use to bring down those blood sugars. Since we're talking about insulin therapy, I just thought of a, an additional question. Is, is it still, because of course I'm reflecting on my nursing school uh, nursing experiences many, many years ago, but is it easier now? Is it still the getting the syringes and 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 that, or is it much easier to do insulin therapy for for individuals now than it say it used to? I believe so. Um, we've been using insulin pens, which are just like what they sound. Um, it looks sort of like just a large pen um, for for a number of years now, and quite easy to use. Very, very private. Um, you know, something that someone can do without really anyone noticing um, that they're taking their insulin injection. Very portable. Um, so those really did change a lot of things with insulin insulin therapy. Not having to draw up, you know, that you know vial and syringe as we did in exactly. the past. Um, so a lot more convenient than it used to be. And then for my type one um, patients, many of them, and some of my type two patients as well, use what's called an insulin pump. And that is just a medical device that continually delivers insulin. Um, so very convenient, um, you know, much, much easier for people to use rather than carrying around the vials and syringes. Um, I try when my patients come in, if they've been started on insulin and have a lot of apprehension about it and are really scared, um, to encourage them to start that injection right in my office. And oftentimes they're surprised at how easy it is. They're surprised at how tiny that needle is. Um, it's not what they pictured at all. Um, and, and so once they've done it, they kind of will say, wow, that really wasn't a big deal. <laughs> that wasn't hard at all. Um, and, and so they'll find that this is actually an effective way to close, um, really close that um, A1C closer down to the, those levels that we want it to be. Can diabetes be cured? At this point in time, there is not a biological cure for diabetes. Um, I know there's a lot of information out there on the internet about curing diabetes and following certain diets, um, but there really is not a, a cure for diabetes. Um, it's a case where those pancreatic beta cells, the ones that are producing the insulin, once they are destroyed or altered, they cannot be regenerated. So at this point in time, we're not able to do that. Um, in my opinion, that will change. There's a lot of really interesting research going on, um, and I do believe we will have a cure for diabetes at some point, but right now we don't have that. Um, you know, Once those cells have been destroyed, um, it is something where, where we just don't have that um, pancreatic function as we used to. Um, we talk more about managing or controlling diabetes to prevent or delay those complications. Um, that is something that can be done and can be done quite successfully. Well, and to that point, because I want to 
segue into about where we are right now with COVID-19. I am curious, though, to know, since diabetes can't be cured and management is so important, might older adults who already have diabetes and then uh, would contract COVID-19, would they be at a higher risk of complications? What would you tell us? Right now, the early evidence is fairly limited. Um, you know, we are in a very new situation, so we're just looking at some early research um, at this stage. But it does appear that people with diabetes are at an increased risk of a more severe COVID-19 infection and hospitalization. Um, there was recent data by the CDC that concluded that COVID-19 patients with underlying conditions such as diabetes were six times more likely to be hospitalized. Um, If we add that with a high BMI and a high A1C, so having fairly uncontrolled diabetes, um, the outcomes look worse as well. And then finally adding other comorbidities such as hypertension or cardiovascular disease, um, that also increases the severity. So it is really at this point in time, appearing that it, not so much having diabetes, um, you know, causes those greater risk of complications, but having uncontrolled diabetes, um, having a high BMI, having other factors such as hypertension really increases severity um, for, for COVID-19 complications. Um, conversely, it does appear people with well-controlled diabetes have better outcomes, have improved outcomes. Um, so it is early. We don't, don't know exactly what the long-term effects are going to be, um, but it does seem there is a higher risk, particularly with people with uncontrolled diabetes and having um, other factors such as um, you know, high blood pressure and cardiovascular disease. So since you keep telling us, and rightly so, that we should manage the, our diabetes effectively, what would you tell older adults and their families who might be listening right now? How can they prepare not only for a pandemic, which is what we are in, but any kind of disaster, a hurricane or a natural disaster, how can we be prepared? Yeah, that, that is really important, isn't it? Um, we're, we're kind of entering situations that we never realized we would ever enter and, and trying to deal with them um, on the fly quite a bit. So I think you used um, a really important word, which is preparation. Um, that is what's key. And when we have disruptions, that leads to worse outcomes in most cases. Um, in our practice, we recommend creating a diabetes supply kit. Um, so that might include things such as one week of medication, um, having your glucometer, having extra test strips, any other diabetes supplies that you might need that you use on a regular basis. Um, I think it's also a good idea to have copies of your prescriptions as well as your doctor's contact information. Um, don't want to be scrambling for that, um, particularly if it's a case of something unexpected, say, a, you know, a tornado or a hurricane that we didn't know was even coming. We want to have that kit ready to go so we can just kind of grab it. Um, and outside of diabetes, I think for all of us, it's important to have some extra food, um, you know, extra water on hand. Um, for people with diabetes, it is good to have some easily digestible carbohydrates, maybe some broth, maybe um, soup, things like that, that uh, can be brought along or, um, you know, kept in a place where if we can't get to the grocery store, we've got those easy to prepare meals right there um, on hand. So it, it is really a case where we want to be prepared. Um, I, I think this really started um, years ago with Hurricane Katrina. It was found that a lot of adults with diabetes um, didn't have extra medication, and they were unexpectedly away from their home for quite a long period of time, and it was difficult to get those prescriptions. It was difficult to get in touch with the doctors. So again, having that supply kit really could have made a big difference in those types of situations. 
And I am hearing you say, even in terms of what we do on a daily basis, not only our medication, but I would imagine that it's still important to be prepared in terms of what we eat or how much uh, we eat and when to eat, that that would be important for older adults with diabetes, especially during COVID-19. I suspect sometimes people kind of get off their usual routine, but probably not such a good idea for diabetes. Well, if I had to say the most popular question I get from patients is what can I eat is definitely number one there. Um, Obviously, healthy eating is an important part of managing diabetes. Um, You know, there's no single magic diet that works for everyone. So, you know, we work closely with our patients to to really focus on on their schedule, on their needs and, and coming up with a plan that will work best for them. Um, for some people, you know, having a low carbohydrate diet can be very effective, um, but that can mean different things to different people. You know, for some people, low carb means very little carbs. Um, for other people, that means very small portions, you know, so it really can differ from person to person as to what might work. Um, I think in any type of situation, you know, whether it's a pandemic or just your day-to-day life, having a plan works best. So, you know, working with your doctor or working perhaps with a dietitian to see which eating pattern works best for you. And again, maybe that's a lower carb approach. Um, For some of my patients on insulin, we have to be careful about that because we don't want to go too low carb um, because that can cause hypoglycemia or or low. So we really want to minimize risks um, and maximize success. And oftentimes that's uh, having a plan in place. I think with COVID, what I personally have noticed with many of my patients, um, just like you said, is that they've got a lot of those go-to foods and those just aren't available, you know, going to the grocery store or even shopping online and you'll see, wow, that's, you know, maybe that grain I always picked in the past is not there at all. Um, What am I going to do? So we kind of think, you know, let's try to be flexible. You know, let's think about swapping out similar foods. Perhaps I had a dish where I always use brown rice in it. And if I'm having trouble getting that, maybe I try another whole grain. Maybe I try bulgur, um, quinoa, something different. Um, You know, just having a little bit of flexibility can go a long way. And then for older adults that feel uncomfortable grocery shopping, which is certainly understandable, um, you know, feel, you know, I'm at a high risk and I don't want to be out there. Um, There's a lot more, you know, options for online shopping, perhaps having help from a friend or a family member to to get those groceries. Um, But again, always having a plan in place ahead of time, I think works best for us. So you're not kind of scrambling on the fly and um, having at least some idea of what works for you and what is most effective for managing your diabetes. You mentioned earlier, Lisa, about weight gain and and overweight being a risk factor, and you hear so much about obesity and, and diabetes. Explain exactly what the dangers of weight gain and uh, obesity are for older adults with diabetes, and has it been proven that diet changes could result in a lesser case of diabetes, or you said there's no cure, but at least it, it's not a severe. How does that all work in terms of weight gain and diabetes and obesity? Yeah, well, we, we do know, as we said before, that obesity is um, a risk factor for diabetes. Um, if you look at, again, some of the studies and we kind of, kind of follow the obesity curve, um, diabetes goes right along with it. You know, as we've gotten heavier, the incidence of diabetes has increased. So weight definitely plays a factor. Um, weight loss can be very effective for controlling diabetes. Um, the research shows that about a 7 to 10% weight loss from baseline 
can really um, help with managing diabetes. Um, so once we have diabetes, gaining weight can sometimes make it a little harder to control it. Um, weight gain can also increase our risk for other conditions like heart disease or hypertension. Um, unfortunately, some diabetes medications do promote weight gain. Um, there's a class of medications called sulfonylureas, um, as well as insulin, um, that can sometimes cause people to put on weight. Um, ironically, in many cases, the blood sugar is actually in better control um, because insulin is promoting glucose uptake. So it's actually helping get that glucose out of the bloodstream and into the cells where it belongs. But when our blood sugar was high, we were spilling a lot of calories through the urine. Um, that glucose was not actually being used. Um, so now that that glucose is where it's supposed to be, we sometimes will see a bit of, of weight gain there. And again, that can make it a bit harder to control those blood sugars um, in the long run. So I would say one of the best, best strategies is focusing on that healthy diet, focusing on regular physical activity so that if there is any weight gain, it's fairly minimal, um, it's fairly small or, or possibly none at all. Um, that can be probably some of the most effective ways to really focus on, on not putting on the weight. Um, diet changes, I do believe, really can help with managing diabetes. Um, you know, when we eat a lot of um, carbohydrates, particularly we eat a lot of refined carbohydrates, and in that case, I'm talking about the crackers and the cookies and, you know, donuts, all, all those types of things. Um, that can often make it hard to manage our diabetes because we see a lot of spikes in our blood sugar, um, kind of a roller coaster that I often see with my patients. So following a healthy diet, trying to get more complex carbohydrates, which are more slower digesting carbohydrates, that can really flatten out those spikes in blood sugar and again, be more effective for managing our diabetes. So not a case where we're going to see it go away, unfortunately. Um, you know, diabetes is still going to be there. And of course, if we change our eating habits to kind of go back to more of those, you know, simple carbohydrates, more of those processed foods, we're going to go right back on that roller coaster again. So it is something we need to adhere to in the long run. But it certainly can be effective um, if, if someone is mindful and um, diligent about staying with some of those dietary changes. Okay. Well, we're going to be hearing about some of the other things that we can do to uh, control our diabetes in the second half. Uh, we're talking with Lisa Murras, registered dietitian and certified diabetes educator with the Virginia Hospital Center Outpatient Diabetes and Nutrition Program. And of course, you're listening to WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. So we will be right back. with Lisa Mares, registered dietitian and certified diabetes educator with the Virginia Hospital Center Outpatient Diabetes and Nutrition Program. And we're learning about the most important lifestyle activities that we need to think about um, for people with diabetes. And so we talked already about weight gain. So Lisa, tell us about exercise. We all need exercise, but why is it especially important for older adults with diabetes? Absolutely. Exercise is really important. Um, it, it's something that can really help with um, keeping that blood sugar in good control. Um, all adults are, you know, encouraged to meet the guidelines of at least 150 minutes a week of moderate physical activity. So moderate means we're getting our heart rate up. Um, that, that is something you may have heard the expression, you can talk, but you can't sing. Um, so so I, I like to use the example of what it's not 
which is when I walk my dog, that is not moderate physical activity because I'm just standing there. I'm kind of waiting for my dog. So this would be a brisk walk. This would be a swim. This might be Zumba, tennis, you know, so many things we can do for physical activity. And if you divide that 115 minutes by seven, it translates into about 21 minutes a day. So anything that you enjoy that can get your heart rate up, um, it can be broken up. We can do, you know, 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the evening. Um, I'm finding with some of my patients, you know, they went to the gym and now the gym is closed. Um, so trying to find some new options. A lot of things online, um, many gyms or many fitness programs are doing Zoom classes. So that can be an option. Um, it can be a case where maybe you go walking early in the morning before there's many people out. You feel uncomfortable being in crowds or, or again, going um, later in the evening when there's not as many people out um, and it can be a little bit quieter at that point. But it really is very, very effective um, for controlling the blood sugar. Um, exercise helps, you know, get that glucose out of the bloodstream, get it into those muscle cells um, and helps bring down, you know, the, the, those average blood sugar numbers. So it can be very effective. The other thing that you mentioned earlier, and I think it's just important to clarify, smoking is bad for everybody, but why is it especially harmful for older adults with diabetes? Well, one issue with smoking and nicotine in particular is it reduces blood flow. So that increases the risk of neuropathy or, or nerve damage. Um, it can also increase the risk of retinopathy, which is damage to the blood vessels in our eyes. So with diabetes, you know, we already have some issues with that poor circulation. And then if we add nicotine to it, it's reducing that blood flow even more. So increasing the risk for complications in short is what it's doing. Um, diabetes is also a case where we have inflammation. And then if we add smoking to that, additional inflammation. And when we have inflammation, that increases our risk of stroke or cardiovascular disease. So you kind of can think about it, you know, we're at a high risk for these complications with diabetes. And then if we had smoking on top of that, if we have more of that poor circulation and reduced blood flow, that's going to increase the risk even more. Um, so I, I always encourage my patients to do whatever is necessary to stop smoking. It can be a risk that we, you know, not to say it's easy, but um, it can be a risk that we can eliminate um, and again, delay those complications. And I suspect now that's, I, I want to also ask about blood pressure. Um, my assumption, since you're talking about stroke and, uh, and heart-related uh, uh, conditions, that it would be important for the blood pressure uh, to remain within normal limits and, and cholesterol levels too. Help us a little bit about the cardiac system for diabetes people with diabetes. Right. So we were just kind of talking a little bit previously about the retinopathy. So, so that's what we would call uh, microvascular damage. It's damaging those tiny blood vessels in our eyes. Um, diabetes can also cause macrovascular damage. So that's damage to those larger blood vessels um, with the heart. So when we have that happening with diabetes, we're having a higher risk of developing heart disease. Um, people with diabetes are twice as likely to die from heart disease as those without diabetes. And then if you think about it, if we add high blood pressure, if we add hypertension to it, um, that's making the heart work even harder to pump that blood. Um, so that high blood pressure can strain our heart, it can damage our blood vessels, it can increase that risk of heart attack, um, stroke, issues with our eyes, issues with our kidneys. Um, the recommendation for people with diabetes is to keep blood pressure below 130 over 80. Um, so to try to keep that um, in a very manageable 
type of level. Um, for many people, uh, uh, medication is needed. Um, having some type of blood pressure medication may be needed, as well as things such as watching the sodium in the diet um, to keep that blood pressure within range. Uh, with cholesterol, same thing. You know, we're having um, that higher risk of heart disease, so we do want to make sure we keep our cholesterol within the guidelines. Um, it's recommended that people with diabetes basically meet the same guidelines as anyone without diabetes, keeping that total cholesterol less than 200, um, the LDL or bad cholesterol below 100, um, and sometimes lower if there are other risk factors involved. And then finally, keeping our triglycerides um, below 150. So, so that's what's recommended for everyone, but particularly so with um, people with diabetes. And like with high blood pressure, sometimes medication can be beneficial. It can be protective. So taking a statin can help us reach those goals and as well as some of those dietary changes um, with, um, you know, lowering our cholesterol, something that a dietitian can often help with, making sure that you're eating, you know, in a heart-healthy manner um, as well as taking a statin if indicated. Um, some diabetes medications have also been sh shown to improve some outcomes. Um, there are some medications, a couple different classes that have shown in the research to help with reducing risk um, for heart disease um, and, and keeping the, those numbers in better um, control as well. So always a conversation to have with your doctor to see if any medications can assist with this. It is interesting how it appears that uh, older adults and anyone for that matter with diabetes really has to be very mindful all the time of their overall wellness situation. Would you, would you agree? Yeah, it, it, it is um, sort of like that. It never goes away. Unfortunately, it's, it's kind of something that you do need to think about. Um, and it is, um, I think maybe to put it in a more positive spin, it is um, still manageable. And, and while we do have to think about it a lot and it does affect many aspects of our lives, people do have a lot of control over whether they get complications. Um, we like to tell our patients that complications are not inevitable. Just because you have diabetes doesn't mean you're going to have kidney disease. It doesn't mean you're going to lose a limb. Um, that you have a lot of control over um, some of these complications. And by putting you know things in practice, you know being managed managing that blood sugar, you can um, hopefully prevent or delay those complications. So we do have a lot of say um, in what happens in the long run. Good advice. Uh, a couple of other uh, areas too, I've often heard about good foot care. Is that important? And what would you recommend to individuals, to uh, older adults to keep their feet healthy? Yeah, foot care is important. Um, you know, we, we sort of joke about that sometimes with our, our patients. Um, that we talk about feet quite a bit. Um, and I will say I, I've seen it quite often um, in my practice that, you know, it, it is possible to have um, damage done to your feet um, because of that, that reduced circulation. You know, that poor circulation makes it harder for wounds to heal. So it's possible that a cut on the foot can develop into an abscess and, you know, worst case scenario, lead to an amputation. Um, so all things we don't want to happen, as I said before, are things that we can prevent from happening. So we really want to focus on good foot care. Um, and what I mean by that is things such as checking our feet weekly, wearing good fitting shoes, um, avoiding going barefoot. Um, those are all good practices that can help keep our feet healthy, help prevent um, having something, you know, develop into a wound or an abscess that can be difficult to heal and difficult to control. So certainly preventative care is very important in terms of our feet. And 
on the other end of our body, uh, uh, dental care. Uh, is it more likely for older adults with diabetes to have problems with, uh, with gum disease or any kind of other dental issue? What would you tell us? Yes, there is an increased risk for, for things such as gum disease or gingivitis with diabetes. Um, when we have high blood sugar, that is actually present in our saliva as well. Um, and that high blood sugar in the saliva can promote the growth of bacteria in the mouth. So this can lead to increased plaque, which can lead to gingivitis if not treated. Um, some people with diabetes also have decreased saliva, um, which can increase the risk of infection. So it is recommended that you follow good practices for good oral hygiene, um, brushing twice a day, floss, flossing daily, um, visiting the dentist every six months. Uh, those can all be ways of lowering the risk for problems with gum disease. Um, and again, preventing any of those longer term complications with our mouth. So finding a good dentist is, is definitely the first step there to make sure that you know everything looks good, there's nothing going on, and then at home practicing that good oral hygiene. And I know that from personal experience that dentists are really taking lots of precautions right now during COVID to protect the patient as well as themselves. So people should not hesitate to, to go to the dentist to make sure that, that things are okay. So I'll just throw a little plug in there for that because mm -hmm. I think that's important. Would you agree? Absolutely. I, I went to the dentist recently myself and I think she had probably about three layers of <laughs> clothing and a face shield and you know just so many things. Um, so I definitely felt safe. And I think with the dentist as well as many physicians, um, they're doing you know, everything possible to really make people feel more comfortable. So, you know, a dentist wouldn't be appropriate for telehealth, but, you know, perhaps with your physician, you know, if, if you check in with your doctor, perhaps every three months, maybe one of those can be done telehealth. Um, and then where it's the case, I do need to go in with such like the dentist or perhaps the eye doctor, um, you know, scheduling it um, where you don't have to sit in the wait, waiting room. You know, I, when I went to the dentist, I, I called and said, I'm in the parking lot. And they said, okay, you know, give us a couple of minutes and then right into the office. And you weren't having to spend any time in the waiting room and feeling, you know, uncomfortable and at risk. So I think um, many, you know, medical providers are taking those steps to make everyone feel safer and feel more comfortable. Lisa, one of the things that you had mentioned a little earlier, and I wanted to spend a little time so people maybe who are newly diagnosed with diabetes know exactly what to expect, is what's in that little kit that you were talking about earlier in terms of the medications or the supplies? What exactly is that? And, and to that point, are these covered by Medicare or other insurance? Uh, what is this an expensive uh, new way of life? Explain a little bit more about what a person who is diagnosed with have to, would expect. Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, when we talk about managing our diabetes, you know, there's there's many areas that we focus on. Obviously, the diet and nutrition, as we've been talking about, the physical activity, as we've been talking about. Another area is monitoring. So that's monitoring your blood sugar. You've heard me talk quite a bit about um, getting that blood sugar in good control. So, so what does that mean? What does it mean that I'm in good control? Well, one area would be, of course, the A1C. Um, that, that's with the, the blood work you're having done at the doctor's office. So you're wanting to make sure that that's below seven if we're following the American Diabetes Association guidelines. Um, but we're also monitoring our blood sugar at home in many cases. Um, the methods of doing that, the, the most common is using a glucometer. Um, a glucometer is basically where we, we poke our finger with, with a small needle, we get a drop of blood, then we have a test strip 
put the drop of blood on that test strip and that goes into the meter and it tells us what our blood sugar is. So you can work with your doctor, you can work with your diabetes educator to find out what your blood sugar targets are. Um, and that can show you how you're doing, you know, with your fasting blood sugar, how you're doing after meals, you know, how things are going, you know, you know throughout the day, what your patterns are with blood sugar. A newer technology is called the continuous glucose monitor. And that's just what it sounds like. Um, it's a device that is worn on the body that is continually measuring the blood sugar and sending that to another device. Um, it can be a reader that looks sort of like a pager, or you can download an app on your smartphone and read your blood sugars that way. Um, the the continue, continuous glucose monitor, or CGM for short, um, that is measuring the glucose in the interstitial tissue. So that's the space in between our cells. So a little different than we're doing the finger sticks. That's measuring the, the glucose in our blood. Um, the CGM is very convenient. You know, someone will wear it typically for a couple weeks and they can just look at their phone and see what their blood sugar is at that time. Very effective for seeing what my blood sugar is overnight. You know, am I going up? Am I going down? You know, what's happening? Um, used to be people would wake up in the middle of the night, you know, poke their finger a few times to kind of see what that nocturnal pattern might be. Um, the CGM makes it a lot easier, you know, to look again for those patterns over a day, over a night as well. Um, Medicare does cover these types of supplies. Um, Medicare Part B covers most of your durable medical equipment. So that's going to be your glucometers, your test strips. Um, that would be your CGMs um, for people that are on an insulin pump, um, that type of thing. And then Medicare Part D is going to cover medications. So that could be oral medications or insulin. Um, it is expensive. <laughs> that's definitely the case. Um, you know, Medicare and, and commercial insurances certainly will cover part of it. Um, but it's actually estimated that diabetes costs the United States about $327 billion in 2017. And that's billion with a B. So that's everything from direct medical costs to lost productivity. Um, and for an individual person, it's estimated that diabetes can cost about $10,000 a year. So yeah, it's a very expensive disease. Um, and it, it is certainly something that um, even with insurance, you know, we can end up spending a, a good bit of money on it. Um, we really encourage our patients to, you know, participate in diabetes education. Um, Medicare does cover 10 hours of diabetes education for the first year and then two hours every year after for follow-up care. And many other commercial insurances will, you know, follow, you know, similar type of coverage as Medicare. Um, so that can be a really effective way, you know, to figure out what is best for me. What is the best eating pattern? What is the best way to monitor my blood sugar? Um, we work very closely with physicians. We work very closely with endocrinologists to make sure that the medication is right, to make sure that the insulin is right. Um, so that can be, you know, a good way to help bring down some of those costs. You're not wasting money um, on medications that aren't working or if a medication isn't covered, you know, we can suggest a different one and, and again, work with your physician to, um, make sure that that's appropriate for you. So really, you know, not just thinking about the supplies, but also thinking about, you know, the education and the support for managing your diabetes as well. What I believe you're talking about is the Virginia Hospital Center Diabetes Prevention Program. Is that um, part of what, what you were just talking about in terms of educating um, older adults? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that is um, a diabetes um, support and management program. Um, we are accredited by the American Diabetes Association. So we follow very strict standards um, as to helping people manage their diabetes. 
Um, and it just can be a really effective way of learning more about the disease, learning again, what's appropriate for you. Um, we work with patients with type one diabetes, type two diabetes, gestational diabetes, and prediabetes as well. Um, and everything from individual appointments to classes, um, it, it can be a case where, you know, somebody can come in a few times and feel like they've got, you know, their, their diabetes in good control and they, they feel very comfortable. And then we have patients that we work with for several years um, because, you know, they just kind of need that support as things change over time and situations change. So that's exactly what the program is doing, providing that education and that support for patients with diabetes. So tell us a little bit more about how, I'm assuming you said they can come in I'm assuming that that's not the case now. Can is all of this online, or how are you providing this education through the the prevention program? And maybe you could also talk about the diabetes self management program. Are, are those two connected, or how does that work? Sure. Um, we have changed, as everyone has. Um, everything was in person in the past, and and when the the COVID nineteen pandemic. Started back in the spring, we did transition um, to telehealth. Um, at this point in time, we offer both. Um, we offer both in-person appointments and then telehealth appointments. You know, it sort of depends on a person's situation. There are some cases, perhaps a language barrier, where an in-person appointment is more appropriate. And of course, we're taking all precautions um, for COVID-19 to keep everyone safe. Um, but then we are also offering those virtual um, appointments where you can meet with your educator um, online. Um, as needed for that. Um, the diabetes prevention program is a little bit different than our diabetes management program. Um, that is for people with prediabetes. Um, the program is targeted at individuals who have a diagnosis of prediabetes, have a history of gestational diabetes, or are at a high risk of being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, perhaps because of family history or um, carrying some extra weight, um, sedentary lifestyle, some of those risks we talked about earlier. Um, the goal of the diabetes prevention program is to prevent people from developing type 2 diabetes later in life. Um, we follow the CDC. It's a CDC program. We follow the CDC curriculum. And the DPP is based on research that has shown um, that by achieving the program goals, which is some fairly modest weight loss, as well as increased physical activity, um, that's been shown to reduce the risk of type 2 diabetes by up to 70% for those over 60 years of age. Um, so it's a very effective program um, based on, on that data. Um, it's a very intensive lifestyle change program. It is a year-long program. And again, the main goals are um, some weight loss and increased physical activity and all of the class topics kind of support those goals. So we talk more about, you know, healthy eating, increased activity, stress. Um, we talk about things like you wouldn't think of sleep. Um, we talk about food triggers, you know, all sorts of things that really go toward, you know, supporting those goals of weight loss um, and increased physical activity. Um, the diabetes prevention program is a Medicare benefit. So it is free for those with Medicare. And um, it is something that, you know, people can learn more by going to our, our website. If they go to virginiahospitalcenter.com uh, diabetes, that will tell you a little bit more about the DPP as well as our diabetes support program. And we'll actually be starting a, a new uh, class, a new cohort um, for the Diabetes Prevention Program in September. So it's actually pretty good timing for anyone who is interested in um, participating in this you know, very intensive lifestyle program and um, lowering their risk of developing type 2 diabetes later in life. So certainly going to the website um, or calling our office can be a good way to find out more information or register for the program. 
And what's that telephone number? Um, Our office number is 703-558-5718. And from what I'm hearing you say, it's not too early to register? No, no, absolutely. We we, um, will be starting um, the class in mid-September and registration is open now. So we would love to have um, additional people come in. Um, As I mentioned before, it is a Medicare benefit. So those with Medicare can attend for free, um, a year-long program. Um, at no cost. So that is um, a really effective way based on, on the research that has shown you can really reduce that risk of developing type 2 diabetes and, and all those complications that we've talked about earlier, all those costs that we've talked about earlier. Um, so I always tell my patients with prediabetes, you know, this is the time. This is a time to make those changes um, and not wait until we develop diabetes. Um, we really want to get in there and do something about it right now. And that self-management program Is that something that they would just learn about online at that same website address? I just want to make sure that I understand that. And I also want to ask a little bit about the uh, Virginia Hospital Center Nutrition Counseling. Sure. All three of your programs. So help us on that. Yeah, our website's probably the best place to start if you want to learn more about the Diabetes Prevention Program or if you want to learn more about um, the Diabetes Self-Management Program, you know, how to set up an appointment or how to sign up for a class, um, going to that virginiahospitalcenter.com backslash diabetes will give you a lot of information about the programs and and how to, you know, um, sign up for or how to um, find out more about setting up an appointment as well. Yes, you're right. We do also see people for what's called medical nutrition therapy. Um, So all of our educators, in addition to being certified diabetes educators, are also registered dietitians. Um, So a registered dietitian will meet with someone to deal with other things that might be related to nutrition. So that might be something like a chronic condition such as kidney disease, um, that might be high cholesterol, that might be weight management, you know, working towards some weight loss. Um, It could be other issues such as Crohn's disease, celiac disease, um, irritable bowel syndrome. You know, there's quite a number of things um, related to, you know, food and nutrition um, that working with a registered dietitian can be very effective for better managing it. Um, So same thing, going to our website, you know, virginiahospitalcenter.com, diabetes, We'll give you more information on what's involved with the nutritional counseling, as well as, um, you know, the contact information for setting up an individual appointment with a um, dietitian. Might it, uh, all of these programs be available for both older adults and their families? Because, you know, in some cases, there might the families might be caregivers. A member of the family could be a caregiver. Is it just limited to people who actually have the diabetes or is this more edu- all these educational programs available for family members or caregivers um, as well? Absolutely. Yeah, we, we always encourage our patients to um, have a support person involved with their care. So um, if it's a telehealth appointment, that person can certainly join in. I, I have calls all the time where I've got the support person right next to my patient. Um, and in many cases, if it is an older adults who, who maybe doesn't do the cooking, doesn't, you know, do the shopping, it can be helpful to have that, that partner there um, to understand exactly, you know, what goes into, you know, some of these foods and, and why we're, you know, talking more about portion sizes with carbohydrates foods versus other um, macronutrients. So absolutely, we really encourage to have, um, you know, a, a partner, um, a younger um, child or, or anyone that is really involved in the um, caregiving of that adult, adult to, to participate in those appointments. So we're just about out of time, but I was just wondering, uh, Lisa, if you could tell us about resources in general. Maybe people are not 
necessarily close to um, uh, Virginia Hospital Center, but uh, want to learn more about diabetes, what would be some of the best resources that people could learn, especially for older adults, but just in general, uh, they could learn more about diabetes? I think one of the best places to start is the American Diabetes Association. Um, Their website is diabetes.org. And a lot of information, um, you know, just everything from understanding more about the physiology of diabetes, um, as well as things such as nutrition, um, you know, and and ideas for exercise, um, more on monitoring, you know, a lot of good information there. Um, They have, you know, a lot of information on their website, but they actually even still produce magazines. So if you're someone that really prefers to, you know, read something in print, you know, you can sign up for some free publications. Um, So that can be a really good resource. Um, If you're looking for more information on food, the American Heart Association has a great recipe section, Um, a lot of really heart-healthy, diabetes-friendly recipes, um, so that can be a good resource as well. Um, And then probably the last one I would say is the the NIDDK, which is the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney, Um, so that's kind of a long URL, it's NIDDK.NIH. Gov, um, but also has a lot of good information um, on diabetes and, and some of the other things that you know can go along with having diabetes, such as um, kidney disease. Um, so those are, are all good places to start and, and learn more about diabetes, learn more about ways of, of managing your diabetes, as well as fun things like trying some new recipes, um, trying some new, new different um, types of activities as well. Okay. Well, I had wanted to ask you one quick question, and I'm hoping you can answer it in 20 seconds. Should older adults with diabetes get flu and, and pneumonia vaccine vaccinations? Yes. The answer to that is yes. Um, like okay. we mentioned with COVID-19, there is a higher risk of complications with the flu. So you do want to get your annual flu shot. Um, and it is recommended that adults over the age of 60 um, get a pneumococcal vaccination as well. So absolutely. Good. I thought maybe since it's now getting towards fall. People (laughs) might begin thinking that. And so I wanted to throw that in. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I want to thank you, Lisa Miras with the Virginia Hospital Center Outpatient Department, um, the Diabetes and Nutrition Program for joining me today. And by the way, if you want to listen to past radio programs or watch any of the Aging Matters TV episodes, best place to check is facebook.com forward slash WERA. You can find the internet addresses both to access the radio shows as well as the TV episodes. And by the way, Aging Matters Radio is now available as a podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I encourage you to rate and review the program there. This is a new feature now for Aging Matters and allow even more people to listen to these very educational programs. I want to thank Robert Winship for handling the technical aspects of today's program. And of course, as always, thank you for listening to Aging Matters. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back with you again next week. 